Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Precision Microcast. Today we'll be talking about technical ceramics and their uses in our industry, some new grinders from Okamoto, and we'll finish as always with our precision problems. After what seems like a longer and longer time period between episodes, Adam and I both hope you enjoy episode 16 of the Precision Microcast. Okay, for this segment, we're going to be talking about technical ceramics and their applications in machine tools. Uh, ceramics is kind of a one-size-all term, and it, it uh, kind of gets used, I guess, imprecisely, because what we might attribute to ceramics in terms of how they behave can be wildly different depending on which specific type of ceramic you use. And we're going to go over some of the major ceramics used in machine tool applications and measurement applications and uh, what what they bring to the table. One of the biggest things that I've uh, encountered with ceramics is how tunable the properties of the ceramic are. So you mentioned that we use the term imprecisely. Often we use the term ceramic to signify anything that's an insulator. Uh, and that's that's fair enough. Most of the ceramics we interact with um, are insulators, but not only can you tune the thermal conductivity of ceramics, but you can tune all the other properties of the material. So you can tune the hardness, the ductility, the toughness, thermal conductivity, and even thermal expansion of the ceramic. And that you can tune in terms of what you add and subtract from the matrix, but you can also uh, tune that in a more engineering sense by what type of ceramic you use or the base ceramic. One good example is silicon carbide. And um, as we talk about all the things ceramic uh, during this segment, um, we'll explore some of the properties that make ceramic ceramics really desirable within machine tools. One of the machine tool builders that's made good use of ceramics and that we'll be looking at today is Sodic. Uh, well-known for their EDM technologies, but also high-speed milling. Uh, they not only use ceramics, but they also manufacture them, uh, even including gauges and surface plates, which are pretty interesting to look at. Um, that's sold under Sodic EMG, if you're curious. But they use uh, silicon nitride in a lot of their machine tools. And because they're an EDM builder, they they have a thermal insulating property that they're looking for with ceramics, obviously. Um, they need to keep the tool or electrode and the the workpiece electrically separated from one another. And using ceramics as both guideways and machine tool beds allows them to do that really easily. But also then they get the benefits of uh, the thermal properties of the ceramic and also the, the weight which allows them to, to move at pretty high speeds. Sodic started making off ceramic work zones for the EDM sinking machines and, and wire cutting machines, uh, primarily for that electrical conductivity gain. But there are many other benefits. Uh, and, and one thing that always sprung to mind was, what, what, why not just use granite? Um, it's got similar properties in terms of electrical conductivity uh, but what you'll find is that, especially with Sodic's use of silicon nitride, the thermal expansion is more than twice as good compared to granite. 
and the hardness is also depending on the granite that you select to compare it against is again more than twice as good uh so it's 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 a win all round especially once you consider the um the manufacturing flexibility of using something that comes from powder initially uh and when you have an expertise in making and casting and sintering very very large parts uh you you can really leverage uh the combination of the technical aspects of the ceramic as well as the form. And if you go to Sodic's website, uh, sodicom.net, uh, and you can you can really see the, the, the expertise when it comes to manufacturing and using these ceramic components. And the, the thermal properties that they're looking for, EDM has pretty long runtime sometimes in wire. So you think of EDM as kind of, being a cooler process, everything's submerged in a big tank of temperature-controlled water. But if you have a 40-hour runtime, you can see some problems if, you know, hour one and hour 40 are a degree apart on a large plate. Uh, you're going to see some direct inaccuracy. And so just being able to keep something stable in temperature for an extremely long time is very important to them. And so ceramics certainly helps them achieve that. Sodic has seven key reasons that they went with ceramics as much as they have. Uh, the lightweight, which allows lighter frames, they can move them faster. Uh, and then they also make ceramic guideways and the wear resistance is very important there. Uh, and the stability over time, insulating for their EDM lines, thermal stability, and then one you don't really think about often in most environments, but a corrosion resistance mm. and oxidation resistance. Um, anyone who's taken like an old machine tool part that uses water or coolant, uh, <laughs> they don't look so great after 20 years. And so having ceramic on all the precision surfaces certainly helps that problem. Absolutely. And the, the other hidden benefit of using ceramics is, I guess, the wear resistance on not necessarily moving surfaces, but on tables. So wire EDMs generate a lot of dust, really. Um, and that dust can can be extremely abrasive if you don't clean it properly and all the rest. Uh, and what Sodic really brags about is the hardness of these ceramic surfaces. It's close to sapphire. That's what their claim is. Uh, and I can see that being really useful uh, over, the, over the life of the machine as jigs and fixtures get taken on and off these tables. And one of the things I really respect about Sodic is how far they've taken the ceramic development process. They've built their own machine to make these ceramic guide rails. And on top of that, they're making gauges, which they're using in the construction of their other machine tools out of ceramic. Um, they've uh, certainly mastered the process in that regard. Uh, while researching this, I it was... Uh, very kind of interested in ceramic guideways and linear bearings. And I came across uh, from Coors Tech, they are graphite loading directly into the centered silicon carbide. Uh, and that gives them a little bit more lubricity built right into the the uh, ceramic. And I thought, that's really, really interesting. Um, one of the projects I'm on now is uh, kind of a ceramic linear guide. And so I'm just trying to soak up as much as I can about ceramics and the process of centering. And it's amazing how tunable it is. As you've said before, they can, 
they can add and subtract any attribute you might think of. Another uh, factor that is extremely tunable is um, the, the the brittleness of ceramics. And often we think of ceramics, especially you know ceramic plates, as a classic example, as being really brittle and fracture prone, um, and, and having low low ranges of motion when it comes to things like bending. Uh, but Maxon motors out of Switzerland, or Maxon drives, or Maxon. Um, they have, they have, you know, strong European, German, and Swiss presence. They have a division, a ceramics division, that specializes in making uh, sort of zirconia-based springs. And uh, about two years ago, there was a few trade shows in Switzerland, um, like the EPHJ trade fair in Switzerland, that um, they really pushed this in the watchmaking sector for uh, for use in external components, some st- stuff like cases, but also within precision timekeeping. Uh, so you can imagine you get a lot of the benefits of low thermal expansion and temperature st- stability uh, from, from the ceramics and insulating properties. Uh, we talked a lot about how ceramic can be also not insulating, but in this case, insulating, and then also very, very flexible. So Maxon has, has explored the other end of the spectrum um, for use in sort of engineering applications. It just occurred to me that precision and watchmaking might have to consider body heat. <laughs> well, may, maybe if you're if you're that particular about it, but usually um, the people that are buying very expensive watches don't don't even care about the time. It's just the way it looks or the color. That's uh that's the biggest. Mm. I see. I was going to say maybe you can offer a a chilling unit, a little backpack <laughs> mounted. <laughs> Yeah, turn it into Iron Man with a little yeah. fusion reactor in the heart. and yeah. So another use for ceramics uh, is not just in machine tools, but also in metrology equipment. So this is sort of like a parallel or tangential industry. Um, and the Zeiss Xenos, which is Zeiss's sort of uh, highest end flagship model, um, utilizes ceramic uh, kinematic components. So they they build their machine from silicon carbide ceramic. And I'll I'll read a little tidbit, a marketing tidbit from their website. Um, They say, compared to the standard aluminum oxide ceramic, silicon carbide ceramics exhibit around 50% lower thermal expansion, up to 30% higher rigidity, and 20% less weight. Compared to steel, it delivers twice the rigidity at half the weight. And... That's pretty impressive, um, and it's quite impressive considering the size of the Xenos as well. So these these motion components are truly massive, and I think that's one of the big reasons why it's taken a relatively long time for these silicon carbide ceramics to sort of proliferate into industry because processing them at the sizes and scales that uh, these machine these machines demand is no is no it's nothing you can trivialize um so finding someone to center a component that's large enough um to fit in a cmm and also finding someone that's probably not going to steal all your ip uh so sodic might not be the supplier but um yeah all those problems i guess later on or further down in the supply chain have to also be figured out Beyond silicon carbide, um, there's some other interesting examples of sort of research level 
um, uh, machines using ceramics. And uh, there is one machine in particular, which is really, really neat. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a research-based machine, machine. I don't see anyone putting one of these in their, in their shop. But uh, the machine is called the NPMM200. And uh, it's, it's a vacuum-based micro-CMM that uses zero doer as the base material for its metrology loop. And um, the pictures, if you search up the NPMM200, the pictures of this thing online are, are very interesting to sort of gaze at and to try to understand why they've done things the way they've done. And there's some very interesting papers written about the machine as well. So yeah, have a look at that, that CMM too. All right, for our new machine segment, uh, Okamoto has released a couple new models since we've done our last episode. Uh, one is the VRG series, and this is what we would consider a Blanchard-style vertical grinder, uh, segmented wheel. And I was a little surprised to see it because I think most people who want a Blanchard grinder have one at this point. Um, it seems like in the U.S. you can always find one new or or from Born & Co. or a lot of really nice ones on the used market. So I just never seemed like there's a huge demand for them. Uh, but I was talking to somebody about these, and apparently the additive manufacturing community is interested in newly built Blanchard grinders or Blanchard-type grinders for the purpose of reconditioning their build plates. Uh, and I had not considered it. Um, a lot of those companies obviously aren't really interested in, you know, older used machinery and the maintenance and reconditioning that goes along with that. And so to just have a reliable semi-automatic Blanchard grinder that they could buy new is of interest to them. And it's very much so no frills. I, I thought they might put a CNC control on it and something like that, but no, it's just a, a very typical manual Blanchard grinder. And then their other new model is uh, another vertical grinder. This one's called the UGM GC series. Uh, and this one's quite unusual. So it's a vertical IDOD grinder, but it lacks the capacity to tilt the head on an angle. So you can't dress or can't grind conical features. Um, but it's more so unusual than that in that it's essentially a three-axis gantry build for a mill. Uh, its frame is really similar to something like the Hermla frame, um, where the head kind of moves back and forth and then slides on the saddle and an X and then has a, a spindle which drops down. The mm. table then has a, a rotary table, and that allows you to grind cylindrical features. But it also has a Cat 40 tool changer. And I'm more interested in this one and that I can't quite figure out what it's doing. It's uh, in the video grinding a lot of ceramic components. So I'm starting to see more grinders built to a specific size round flat part. Um, like Tayo Koki, for example, and DMG Mori are, are really pushing grinders or mills with ultrasonic spindles that can produce these parts up to about 500 millimeters that are, you know, maybe few centimeters thick and 
it, it's interesting that there's always some part shape that manufacturers are trying to process or help people process. And uh, I don't know what it is for this, but I don't know. Any thoughts? Um, my guess is all of the satellite components that you see. Um, sometimes you see some ceramic ceramic parts that are because like the volumes there. They're sending thousands of these things up into space, and the form factor, although probably slightly smaller than what these machines are capable of, um, does sort of lend itself to this size. Um, and that's also an industry with a lot of money, but another industry that, you know, it's pretty general, but, uh, you could, you could sort of poke your finger at Semicon and they're always trying to push the edge in terms of, um, engineering materials and the ceramic, uh, showcase of the, the vertical ID in the UGM does lend itself to maybe that format as well of um, some of those semicon vacuum components and wafer processing um, and handling components. That's just my two cents at least. Well, it is nice to see new stuff getting built by them and, you know, grinders in specific. Um, sometimes it feels like kind of a an outdated industry. Like people are surprised when they still hear people do grinding or, you know, like it doesn't always feel like the most cutting edge when you look at what people are doing with five axis mm. milling. And, um, so, you know, we sometimes feel like we're left behind, but, uh, I will say the, the new paint scheme is a little, it's a bit much. A lot. Um, yeah. they went to a, a red and black graphics combo, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really, really cool to see that they're doing new stuff. So if you have a minute, go check out what Okamoto is up to. And they also have a lot of neat accessories, um, which you don't see people offering the full package very often. One thing that caught my eye and I wanted to ask you about um, with these machines was the in-machine or on-machine metrology. Uh, what are your thoughts on the probing that you see within these machines? Um, I'm always a little leery when you're trying to use the same machine that you cut your parts with to verify that the parts are cut accurately. You know, I think like there's, there's a opportunity for problems there. Um, but then also, you know, what's the, what's the repeatability of a probe mm. and then that process as a whole, like that probe, when you mm. introduce grinding swarf all over the part, um, and so I, I, I don't know how much I would rely on it for, for final a accuracy, but, um, I do think there's room for probing on grinders in terms of mm. how much stock to remove. If you think about how slow the stock can be to remove and that the fact that a lot of ground work pieces aren't necessarily flat, like they don't have an even distribution of stock mm. when they start. You know, you might have like a Pringle-shaped part with high corners on two corners. The ability to probe and find where the stock is and then maybe go to a different grinding program to address mm. those high areas. Um, I think there's a lot of time savings opportunities that you can see by having grinding on the machine. But uh, as far as like the idea of uh, probing the chuck and then probing the part and seeing how tall your part is and 
hoping that that's going to mm. never have a problem. I don't know if I'm there yet personally. Yeah, especially with a spindle probe like in the in the UGM machine. Um, spindles are just big heaters, and if if you want to use a spindle probe and and really get down to the last micron, you sort of want to remove all the heat from the spindle before you chuck your probe in because your probe starts growing and also the spindle's still moving even once you've turned it off. In fact, it's moving probably more than it ever ever will. Um, and I, I, I guess I saw that probing sort of set up and it, it, it instantly gave me the ick. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, that's so um, unstable as a process uh, for, for a machine that is probably very stable in itself and in terms of um, the environment that, you know, it's being placed in as well. Like it, it, it's probably doing a very high precision task and to introduce such a <laughs> yeah medium precision application, it, it was very interesting. Now, when you do see probing or measuring done on machine and grinding and done well, it's usually with something where it's a total measuring solution and the machine's just introducing it to the part. Like Marpaz, for example, yeah. has these uh, kind of C-shaped gauges that basically slide over the shaft that's being ground or they stay on it as it's being yes. ground. Yeah. And uh, it gives you very, very, very accurate diameter readings. Um, but, uh, you know, you're not relying on any machine tool motion there. Yeah, that differential um, gauging setup from Marpos, you sort of see it on a lot of cylindrical grinders where it sits underneath the wheel almost or side by side on the wheel i've seen it on rotary surface grinders as ah, well yes. where it's differentially measuring the chuck and part height ah fascinating. Um, so it could be it could be done but i i don't know if like a standard machine tool probe is the way to do it mm. but that's just me have you seen um the most recent video on that channel where they've got the aroa chuck and the magnet on the aroa yeah, I couldn't. I I think that's just like a trade show demonstration because there, there's not enough there's not enough uh, cycle time there to justify. It. Like, I mean, you're going to have five hundred thousand dollars in a row of chucks to get two hours of runtime. So it just, it, and that's always my thing with pallet changing on the the CNC grinders. It's like why not buy four bare-bone CNC grinders and one guy eight hours a day runs them, which is what most of my industry does. They have like little circular cells of surface grinders and one guy in there contemplating suicide, just, <laughs> <laughs> just swapping parts. What you'll find, Adam, is that the reason why they need all these automation solutions is all those guys <laughs> end up... <laughs> where they end up, you know. Precision problem, huh? Uh, like I said earlier, I uh, had to do some ceramic linear guides. And uh, I've done a, a fair amount of ceramic parts in my career, but it's almost always one-offs. And when you're dealing with one-offs, you can you can move slower and uh, things like grit don't really grab your attention much. Um, but I had a twenty part run, 
and there were 19 operations per wow on, on the part in total and so there's a lot of parts getting loaded into fixtures and uh what i discovered is using the fine grit wheels i was using that the the swarf which was nearly invisible became a real problem mm. um you could wipe and wipe and wipe and it never like really comes off. It's, mm. uh, it's very hard to see. It's very lightweight and it, it has an affinity to kind of cling on to metal for whatever reason. And, um, I was, I was trying chem wipes and all kind of cleaning procedures and like a, you know, the, the drag clean where you put the part on and drag the chem wipe out. Nothing was really leaving me satisfied. And what I ended up doing is I just, kind of went old school on it and ground some grit grooves into all the surfaces on my fixture that the part was registering on. And then you could just do like a simple slide motion. Um, and problem just evaporated. You'd load the part, slide it forward about two grit groove lengths. And all of a sudden it was very well seated. And, uh, yeah. So, Grit grooves are definitely not new technology, but uh, I don't know why, but it took me a while to figure out to put them on. And do you foresee more ceramics uh, in, in your future? Uh, yeah, I I like doing work where, you know, it's kind of got a moat around it. Like not everybody wants to get in bed with ceramics. Or <laughs> um, My only hang up with doing it is I feel like the people who do it well are centering and processing post-centering. And I don't I don't know that I'll ever get there. Um, you know, I just kind of want to be a grind shop. And uh, so, yeah, I, I feel like you have to offer that vertical integration to really stand out in that world, so. But additive is now being used for ceramics or has been for a while now. And that's kind of interesting. Um, it goes from like what's perceived as a long lead time process to something that now you can have high precision, highly elaborate structures relatively quickly. So yeah, we'll see where the technology takes me. And if, uh, if I have a customer base for it at the time, yeah, I might consider doing more with it. We looked into additive near net and then, uh, I guess high precision machining, um, post sintering for ceramic components using 3d printing. And it was, um, it was a really compelling use case if you had the need for it, because you could prototype incredibly quickly. You could have something printing sort of overnight over the weekend, sintering the next day and uh, like a finished part with some, you know, hard milled threads and maybe a couple of, couple of datum features in there by the end of the week. But what we found was that, because we're in Australia, we still suffer from lead time issue with with the tooling. Um, if you're grinding something, I guess the wheels are pretty pretty available. But if as soon as you want to add a thread or a datum surface, it can become another lead time issue. Having used those same tools a lot in carbide, that is definitely a consideration. Um, I use two suppliers for that, and yeah, it's it's sometimes a toss up if I'll be able to get the tool I need in mm. it quick fashion but in saying that i could see having a lot like the library of tools um if you were to be processing this in-house you know if you 
if you're part of a dev team, for example, that needed mm. ceramic parts really quickly and money wasn't an object, you could have a stock of, you know, very expensive, very elaborate. Stock of $400 end mills. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Um, so the, the pathway I think is there for tight turnaround ceramic components. Um, uh, but what I found most interesting, I think with the 3d printing was, uh, how elaborate you can make the parts and adding things like conformal cooling channels into the geometry and not really having to worry about it. Um, it, it almost becomes an afterthought. And I guess that the danger in that is that you let CAD jockeys loosen that sort of freedom. You'll never be able to rein them back in. So when they want to make something normally, <laughs> it's it's a lost cause. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a process. I think we'll see more of in the in the coming years. Yeah, and that you know, from a small business point of view, I want to be growing into good directions. Mm. I, you know, when I kind of got out of working for other people automotive tool and die was not going in a healthy direction and it still isn't. So I decided that, you know, I wasn't going to entertain too much of that. Um, and so I just kind of want to continue to work with what I consider our companies or, or types mm. of work with a upward trajectory. What was your precision problem? Uh, lately I've been cutting a lot of sort of itty bitty flexure components. Um, the easiest way to describe it is if you look through the Thor Labs catalog, um, the the parts that we've been making lately are sort of like the Thor Labs Thor Labs Plus catalog. So all the things that look like Thor Labs components with flexure stages and so on, but they're just not made yet. And um, that might be a combination of just a standard Thor Labs looking component with some, you know, part specific or assembly specific uh, features in it. And um, that's really great because the the parts are intricate and there's multi-process um, sort of flow on them. You do some milling, maybe some turning, maybe some grinding, uh, and then wire EDM usually to finish it off. So the problem that we were running into is that these parts, when we make them, the blanks have quite a bit of work in them. Uh, so, you know, the one, one part, for example, had about, 30 minute cycle 35 minute cycle time in the in the micro hd and um about 10 minutes of handling after that for some deburring and as well as some qc and we're doing 100 percent qc so could could get to about an hour quite quickly um per part of work and it's all high value work with high tooling cost and the last operation generally is wire edm um so the, the the sort of the pointy end of the problem became that the scrap rate got annoyingly high in the EDM uh, in two ways. The first way was obviously damaging the part, so cutting something the wrong way or um, uh, out of spec features. And usually, you think the wire EDM is really stable, but one of the bigger drivers as to why we we're getting scrap parts is because to meet sort of customer expectations and price point, um, especially because we're doing these parts in volume, you have to run these parts very unattended on the wire EDM. So that usually means a pallet of 10 plus parts and um, you have to wire cut them during the day, not looking at them. And then during the night, definitely not looking at, looking at them. 
And uh, what that means is things like really small things become extremely large problems in the same way that when you try to automate CNC mills, you have issues with SWARF and uh, tool life. Uh, those same problems rear their head on in YODM. Instead of tool life, you have electrode wear. Uh, and instead of uh, SWARF, you have elect, uh, slugs that often, you know, cause wire breakages or they push push the wire during the cut into a way that you don't want it to cut. Um, and then on top of all these things, you have the standard issues, which is like wire threading problems. And so with one particular part that we sort of did last year, end of last year, um, we had a lot of slug issues uh, and I was trying to, cut down the cycle time as much as possible. So I was taking a few shortcuts. Um, but what we quickly realized was that uh, a no-core strategy, which means pretty pretty much you you use an adaptive milling or a pocket strategy, but with a wire EDM. To- you erode the entire slug. Exactly. You, you cut away the entire slug so that nothing really drops out. And the slugs that were that we were eroding, I mean... They're, they're paper thin. Like by the time by the time you actually erode the slug, you, you haven't even increased the cycle time very much. Um, but you don't think about those things when you're trying to cut down time. And it took quite a few failed parts for us to realize that if we spent one minute extra per part, our process reliability went from like 40% to 100% or very close to 100%. Um, you gotta slow down to speed up. You gotta slow down. To but all the old guys that read magazines where their machines ran would tell me. Yes, my favorite is is the guys that I think you might have told me this. It would have like a, a grinding block, um, so something like just a piece of material that they'd put on the surface grinder and just like face it away because the machine would then be running and the boss. The boss oh would yeah, no, no, no. They uh, they were looking at machine tool uptime and evaluating. Uh, <laughs> So yeah. come Friday, there was always something on the machine, whether it needed ground or not, <laughs> just to, just to kind of hit the metrics. So yeah. You got to be careful with KPIs. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, that was the problem that we were having sort of end of last year about that run of flexure parts. There was a slug and we got rid of the slug and it fixed it. And this round of um, flexure parts, we were having, we were having issues with wire threading and, um, Man, what a bear. So shout out to Taylor Cox. He's a Makino applications engineer for, for the US market. Um, Taylor's an absolute gun when it comes to wire EDM and he helped me out heaps. Um, I'm not even sure if he listens to the podcast, but there you go. It is what it is. Um, so one of our issues was that we're trying to thread a 0.2 millimeter brass wire into a 0.5 millimeter hole. Um, and that's that's actually not so bad, but when you have... You know, about a hundred threads per per run. Even if you have a ninety nine percent threading reliability, uh, failing on one thread can can ruin like ten hours of cycle time overnight. You just have statistically, how often does it fail within twenty minutes of you leaving? Hundred <laughs> percent of the time. All <laughs> um, every time, in fact, it failed like within the first couple of hours, which sucked. Um, and the compressor stays on overnight and the lights stay on and yeah. 
So you you leave the shop lights on? <laughs> uh, well, I do because it's easier to see the. Th- oh, your webcam. Yeah, the webcam, exactly. <laughs> I can tell what color um, the 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 status light is. Um, so uh, in chatting with Taylor, and obviously all of this comes from you know EDM experience. If I you know if I was an EDM expert, I'd, I'd know these things straight away. But um, there are, there are a lot of uh, parameters that you can fine tune in the threading cycle for these machines. So is the work tank up or is it down? How long does it stay up when, when you're threading? And so what we found was that the threading performance skyrockets when, there's, when it's threading with a, the with a work tank down. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a finely tuned thing because you don't want the work tank to go all the way down uh, because you, it takes a long time. So if you multiply like five minutes, for, well, it wouldn't be five minutes, but let's say a minute of a tank coming up and down over 100 parts, you suddenly have added more than nearly two hours of cycle time. Um, but at the same time, you increase your reliability. So um, yeah, I guess why are EDM challenges for flexure components that it's something that we didn't really anticipate when we're doing prototype quantities but as soon as you get into 100 pieces or more of these parts um a lot of challenges show up Mm. i really hate 100 pieces (laughs) like it's you can't justify throwing a lot of process engineering at it uh you can't really throw a lot of automation at it you just kind of have to like grit your Mm. teeth and get through it yeah um like I want one or one million. I don't <laughs> don't really want anything in between. You wanna you wanna mill it or stamp it. You don't want to do anything either. Either way. Yeah. yeah, like we had yeah, we had one burr on the thread that we had to sort of pick at for a hundred parts, more than a hundred parts, and that that really sucked. because um, you just have to throw man hours at it. Um anyway. So that was my precision problem. Hmm. Sometimes I think EDM, wire EDM would be a good fit for me because with the shop in my backyard, I could be like the lighthouse keeper when the wire EDM has a problem. I come out in my bathrobe and, you know, (laughs) rethread. But then the the trade-off there is like getting up at two in the morning to go deal with the problematic machine tool (laughs) does not sound at all entertaining to me. Yeah, you might do it once. And then yeah. just it's like the easiest snooze on an alarm that you'll ever do. I, I do think wire EDM would be a, a very good um, fit for your shop because even though I've outlined all these problems, um, it's probably the easiest way to get unattended cycle time. Um, it's pretty low hanging fruit. Like if you look what, you know, 150 to $180,000 gets you in terms of hours per week of burn time, potentially Um, to get that out of a five axis mill or Mm. like a Y axis lathe, you're going to spend significantly more money. Oh yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, the other thing I like about it is when you get in a wire EDM job, what do you have to buy? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Yeah. You have the wire on the shelf. You might have to do some weird work holding. Um, yeah, maybe not, true. Yeah, but you have to do weird work holding with the mill, but with yeah. the mill, you know, you got to buy like some weird reamer or, you know, thread you've never heard of and won't ever use again. And, uh, and so I feel like with milling 
there's just a lot of bits and, you know, weird, weird thread gauges. And each new project kind of has like a, a, an amount of that. Whereas wire EDM, I don't feel like there's a lot of job specific purchasing going on. Mm. I could be wrong, but that's just uh, my outside looking in view. No, I think you're right. Um, the, the big ticket items are always sort of to set you up. Um, and they are bigger ticket items when you do compare it to other processes. Like you, you'll spend five or $6,000 on a, on a good vice setup for a wire EDM, but like with a leveling plate and, you know, nice, yeah. nice bunch of accessories. But once you do that, you can approach almost every job the same way. And that's the other thing. Now that I'm, now that I'm bought in on Aroa, <laughs> yeah. kind of one, one foot in the door. Yeah, exactly. It's not far away. Um, but yeah, even with the wacky work holding, the the ability to have a leveling plate um, means that you don't really have to hold parts that well. You just have to hold on to them and you get the leveling plate to do the rest of the work. Um, we did about three years without a leveling head and it was fine, like it worked, but I think we cut down like maybe 50 or 60% of the startup effort, whether that be in time or money by um, introducing that that sort of shortcut. I was watching a demo, kind of, I don't know, I spend a long time deciding if I want a machine tool and I'm kind of in the middle of that decision process and kind of looking at EDMs as potentially something or trying to rule it out or, you know, somewhere mm. in between there. But I was watching a, I believe it was a Makino demo and uh, they use a test indicator and they yeah. jog it around the part and basically enter three points and yeah. it figures how skewed and out of parallel the part is to the machine tool. And, and then it'll skew the wire accordingly. And so you don't even have to have the part leveled. Um, not sure how much effort it is to level the part. Like, <laughs> it, you know, from what I've seen of head leveling heads, it doesn't take that much time and mm. you can do it offline. Yeah. Inside, so I'm not sure if there's a huge time savings advantage, but I thought it was kind of neat that that's how the technology is progressing. Not sure I like the voice command. <laughs> what is it, like um, Athena? Athena? Is yeah, that- Athena. Athena, set the work coordinate. and uh, That just doesn't seem fun in a noisy machine shop. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for listening to this slightly shorter episode of the Precision Microcast. And uh, thank you all for patiently waiting between episodes. We know you're waiting. We like that you're waiting. It makes you value this episode slightly more. And if you've made it this far, well, keep waiting. (laughs) Maybe there's a Marvel Easter egg. Maybe there's another 10 minutes. Unlikely. Very unlikely. But what I can say is... Thank you all for listening to the past 16 episodes. It's been a fantastic ride. And if you've got any suggestions of what you want to hear talked about, please send a message uh, either via Instagram to the page or directly to either of us. See you guys. Bye.